Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hello there, plant people and gardening friends. Thank you for joining me again. It's been such a nice spring week here for us here in Taylor, Texas. And it's Easter weekend, plus there's a full moon. Easter Sunday always falls on the Sunday after the first full moon, just after the spring aquanix in March. Now, way back a really, really long time ago when Easter became a thing, they used to follow the lunar cycle to keep track of when to celebrate Easter. Now, at some point, we all switched over to the Gregorian calendar for measuring days. It's based on the solar cycle instead of the lunar cycle, and that's why Easter is never on the same day every year. Easter follows the moon, and all the other holidays seem to follow the calendar. This full moon is called Pink Moon, not because it looks or glows up all pretty and pink in the sky, but according to folklore, it's called Pink Moon because April's full moon coincides with spring blooming flowers, in particular, pink phlox. I like phlox, but it is a little disappointing because, I mean, a literal pink moon would be so cool. I think it would be really fun, but they don't let me name stuff. So anyway, phlox is a native plant that can be found blooming all across Texas. There are several different varieties that grow in Texas. Most all bloom in a shade of pink. There are, uh, you know, like light pink, some are white, more white, um, pinkish white. Others are more purple or periwinkle blue. There are annual and perennial varieties of phlox that grow here in Texas. Annuals are those plants that flower set seed and die all in one season. They tend to bloom more heavily. Perennials, on the other hand, come back year after year, but they usually don't have as many blossoms. But it doesn't matter, annual or perennials, all phloxes are cool, pretty plants. Their flowers have five petals, five sepals, and five stamens. The flowers grow closely um, in clusters, but if you look closely at the individual flowers, you'll notice that the centers are lighter. Some of them are white, some are lavender, and some of them are gold. And this lighter center forms like a near perfect star shape right in the eye of the flower. I think it looks really neat. And it's just a simple and sweet flower, but there's so many flowers that they really have a big impact on the eye. Most varieties are also fragrant. Some are more fragrant than others. Phlox has a nice clove scent that is 
really lovely. And I find the heavily scented varieties to smell just intoxicating. I love it. It's sweet, it's spicy, but somehow it's also kind of light too. I don't know. Um, the most common type of native phlox that we have here in Central Texas is an annual variety called Drummond phlox. It's one of the most beautiful Texas wildflowers, I think. It blooms in the springtime in a wide variety of colors. Everything from white, pink, lavender, and my favorite, clear, bright red. It's such an intense and really pretty regal red. I love it. German phlox can grow to 20 inches tall when it's happy. It likes well-draining soil and it can tolerate some dappled shade. Creeping phlox and mox, uh, moss phlox are also native plants. They are more um, commonly cultivated and available for sale as transplants from the nurseries. I've also seen them um, sold in big box stores. As you can guess, they're hardy plants. They do well. Um, they both, um, creeping and moss phlox, are short, low-growing plants. They only get to be about 6 to 10 inches tall, and both of them form thick mats of spring flowers every spring. They are also evergreen perennials, and even after their big, showy spring bloom, they are nice options as ground covers. Now, creeping flocks prefers moist shade, and moss flocks is the more tolerant um, of the two. It can, it can take dry, rocky, sandy soil and full sun. April's full moon has got me thinking a lot about the moon. And of course, gardening. Um, nothing really unusual there, but I thought I might touch on some other moon-related things in this episode. And I'm curious to know if y'all have ever heard of moon phase gardening or planting by the moon. It's an old, maybe even ancient gardening practice of using the lunar cycle to optimize plant growth. The concept is that the moon phases affect plant growth in the same way that the moon's gravitational influence affects the ocean's tide. But here on land, the idea is that the moon also affects the moisture in the soil. The theory is the moon draws moisture to the surface of the soil and the seeds will absorb more water during the full moon and new moon phases. It's a bit like soaking seeds the night before planting where there's more water into the seed. The moon pulls moisture to the surface and newly planted seeds absorb it and they swell thanks to that extra water. This results in higher germination rates and better established plants. The moon moon's phases and gravitational pull are also supposed to influence above ground and below ground growth. This growth is called geotropism, which is the effect of gravity on plants. 
roots grow downward and stems grow up. With moon phase gardening, you want to plant above ground crops like corn, tomatoes, watermelon, squash, all those, when the moon is waxing. Waxing moon phases to me are like the moon is filling up. It's the period of time when the new moon is building up to the full moon. Just like how planting seeds during a full moon draws moisture to the surface, this gravitational pull encourages stems and leaves and flowers to grow. I also kind of like to think this part is like the moonbeams are kind of pulling the plants up from the soil and letting them grow towards the moon. Plants that we grow for the root crops should be planted during the waning phases of the moon. The waning moon phases to me make it seem like the moon is draining. The full moon gradually empties and then the lunar cycle starts all over with a new moon. Since the moon is receding, there is less gravitational pull on the moon. Uh, there's less gravitational pull towards the moon and plants respond more to the earth's gravitational pull. This encourages plants to grow roots, tubers, and bulbs. Waning moon crops include the root vegetables, potatoes, carrots, beets, onions, but also perennial plants and flowering bulbs. Any plants that depend on strong root development are the waning moon plants. With moon phase gardening, the only time you wouldn't want to plant anything is when it's a new moon when the moon is absolutely dark and you, there's not one in the sky. This is the time when plants are supposed to rest. And supposedly this dark period is a really good time to get out and kill weeds because they won't grow back. I'm not sure about that, but I am really, really intrigued by moon phase gardening, but I haven't really been able to try it so that I could tell you how well it works. I mean, like I might've tried it once or twice and then forgot about it. Um, I really like the idea and I think it kind of sort of makes sense. I do have a friend who is better about practicing moon phase gardening you know, she has her farmer's almanac and she keeps track of all the timing and the crops and the moon cycle. And she really does say it's a, it's a good way to plant. You know, she's a super wonderful person and a fantastic gardener. So I'm going to trust her on that. And I'm, I'm inspired that maybe one day when I'm not so distracted by my daily life and things are a little less hectic, that I will be able to focus on moon phase gardening. Um, I'm not sure that I have my act together enough at this point in my life, um, but for now, I'm just really satisfied about getting my garden planted pretty much when I'm supposed to. So 
one day I will look back at moon phase gardening and see if I can do that sometime. I was out in my garden Friday night. I was out with a flashlight because I needed to go cl close up my chicken coop. And while I was out there, I remembered that I had some strawberries out in the garden that I forgot to check. They were about to be ripe and I wanted to go, um, go look at them and pick them if they were ripe because I didn't want the pill bugs getting them. So I walked out across the yard to the strawberry patch and noticed the moon. It was just big and full and beautiful. You know, I don't really even, uh, I don't remember what time it was. Maybe it was like nine or nine 30. Um, but the neighborhood was just still and quiet. It was amazing. While I was out looking at my berries with my flashlight, um, I sat on the edge of the raised bed and started weeding. Um, I had a bunch of pigweed or some other variety of amaranth popping up in my strawberry bed. So I started plucking out those seedlings and hold my little flashlight and then kind of scooting around the entire bed. It really didn't take all that long. It probably took longer than if I wasn't having to hold a big flashlight in one hand, but what really struck me about that moment was just how peaceful I felt out there in the quiet and the dark in my garden. And I just thought it was amazing. I loved being out there by myself under that big bright moon. I really thought this is so awesome and I should do this more often, like do it all the time. Um, I'm not sure about doing it all the time because I um, noticed that when I had gone out the next morning, I realized I had um, missed some um, other weeds too because, you know, it was, it was dark. And, you know, I had also um, walked up under this low-hanging oak branch and I got a bunch of those oak tassels all tangled up in my hair. So I had to, um, brush that mess out before I went to bed, but you know what? I don't care. Overall, it felt great to be in my backyard in the quiet, dark stillness of the night. I don't know what it was. Maybe, maybe it was the moon's gravitational pull working on me or just the intimacy of being out in my yard all alone, you know, without all the distractions that I would see in the daylight. I don't know. There was just really something special about it. And I highly recommend at least doing it once. Your garden will feel like a whole different place at night. Now, I want to make... I definitely want to make an effort or maybe even make a habit of spending time in my garden at night. I'm also inspired too because I'm also really excited because months ago I impulse purchased a packet of giant moonflower seeds. I'm going to take a break and then I'll talk about moonflowers. 
You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you'll go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music coming from our station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plow and Hose Facebook page or the Instagram page and like and share it with your gardening friends. Or head over to wherever you, wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to the Plow and Hose podcast. If you enjoy the flexibility of being able to play, pause, rewind my show whenever you want, please go download some episodes and be sure to leave a review. It's a really quick, quick click on those stars, leave a sentence if you can. This is going to help others find the show and it lets folks know that Plow and Hose is a pretty good show. If you already left a review, thank you, thank you, thank you. I love show reviews. Okay. When ordering seeds every year, I like to look for and try unusual or interesting sounding or just flat out weird plants. I have mixed results when it comes to my impulse purchases. Not everything does well here in Central Texas. And you know, that's fine. Seeds usually aren't very expensive. So I like to try new things. This year, I decided to try giant moonflowers. Normally, I'm not really drawn to white or pale colored flowers. I much prefer bright colors, but I saw these giant moonflowers and they had a picture of this little girl and holding a moonflower and it was like as big as her head. And the description said that they got to be seven inches in diameter. And that's like the size of like a salad plate or a small child's head. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I got to get these. <laughs> Giant moonflowers are members of the um, Ipomia family and are related to morning glories, bindweed, and sweet potatoes. Morning glories and moonflowers are practically siblings. Except, of course, they bloom at different times of the day. I don't know. Maybe they have the same mother and different dads. I don't know their plants. <laughs> if you didn't know anything about plants, you could probably figure out that morning glories bloom early in the day. Moonflowers unfurl their blossoms at dusk, and then they're fully open after dark. Just like morning glories, moonflowers are annual plants. They are twisting, climbing vines that can grow 20 feet long. They have large heart-shaped leaves and are really fast growing. The flowers are heavily scented and they attract lots of nighttime pollinators like moths, bees, certain species of bees and beetles, and my favorite, bats. If you're interested in bats, check out episode 32 from August 15th. I spent quite a bit of time talking about bats, 
but I also spent some time talking about another night blooming um, plant, another favorite of pollinators, the night blooming cirrus. Moonflowers and morning glories can be planted now through the end of June. You can plant them directly in the ground where you want them to grow, but soak the seeds at least overnight. Giant moonflower seeds are big. They're like the size of a dime or maybe a small marble. Large hard seeds benefit from soaking 12 to 24 hours before you plant them. Any large seeds that have a thick hard seed coat really benefit from soaking overnight. If you soak large hard seeds like moonflower seeds overnight in a dish, your seeds can germinate and sprout faster. Rehydrating your seeds can really shorten the germination time. The larger the seed, the more they benefit from soaking. The water softens the seed coat and that thick shell that protects them during dormancy. The seeds use the moisture to activate and then push out new growth. If perhaps you have a little more time and you're patient and you don't mind waiting, you could try planting them at the next full moon, which will be May 16th. Coincidentally, it's called Flower Moon. And I really, really think someone should try this for me. Somebody set up a little experiment, take some moonflower seeds, soak half of them the night before, and then take the other half, your dried bean or dried flower seeds, and plant them both out in the garden and see which ones do better. But you got to make sure that you do it you have to plant your moonflowers under the flower moon because I want to know which ones grow best. I totally would do this myself, but I also know that I would totally forget to do this between now and then. So somebody please, please do this. Please go plant moonflowers under the flower moon and let me know how spectacular they are, if they are indeed being Easter, it's no surprise that the white trumpety Easter lilies are popular plants this time of year. Iconic as poinsettias at Christmas, Easter lilies are traditional flowers placed at altars in churches all over the world. The story goes is that these beautiful white lilies sprung up in the spots where drops of Jesus's sweat fell to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, where he was the night before his crucifixion. Lilies now symbolize and commemorate the resurrection. One of the most interesting things I learned about the story of Easter Lily is that the lilies that we get here in the United States are native to Japan, not Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified. Now, there is a very similar lily that is native to Israel called the Madonna lily. They both have similar flowers and bloom around Easter. Now, I think Madonna lilies would 
be the more authentic and historic choice for decorating churches at Easter, but they're hard to come by in the U.S. because they are really susceptible to several viruses and fungal diseases. But luckily for altar guilds across America, someone found the Easter lily in, of all places, Okinawa, Japan, and they began exporting bulbs. Japan totally dominated the Easter lily export industry for a super long time, but then that all changed in 1941, thanks to World War II, and that's when the commercial bulb production shifted to the U.S., and now... More than 95% of all bulbs grown for the potted Easter lily market are produced in just a narrow coastal region between California and Oregon. These bulbs are grown um, just in this, this spot along the Pacific coast. And they're harvested in the fall and then they're shipped to commercial greenhouses where they are planted in pots and forced to grow and bloom in time for the Easter holiday. Since Easter isn't the same date every year, there's a whole lot of planning involved and there's only a two-week window when potted Easter lilies are sold. But even for Just those two weeks, Easter lilies are the fourth largest crop in the potted plant market. That's a lot of lilies. Lots of people, I'd say most people who acquire potted Easter lilies just throw them away after they finish blooming, but you don't have to toss them out after the flowers fade. You can plant your Easter lilies outside after the holiday. Once the last bloom withers, you can clip it off, but leave the rest of the plant. The green leaves and the stems are needed to help make food for the bulbs so that they will grow and bloom again next year. Easter lilies like full sun and well-draining soil that is amended with lots of compost. Good drainage is important to all lilies, so just Find a spot and ensure that you have lots of compost and it drains well. When you're ready, remove the plant from the pot and separate the bulbs. Plant the bulbs about four inches deep and then cover them with two inches of mulch. So you want the total depth to be six inches. These lilies like to keep the bulbs in a moist and cool environment. And that layer of mulch will help maintain moisture and keep soil temperatures cool. All right, when you, anytime that you transplant a forced greenhouse grown plant outside after it's lived pretty much all of its life in climate control conditions, it's gonna freak out a little bit. And this is called transplant shock. It happens at planting time. It's an issue um, related to the roots being disturbed or damaged when moving it from one growing spot to another. 
It also happens when growing conditions are, um, are different, like going from inside with climate control to the natural conditions of outside. Have you ever bought like a plant and put it in a new pot or planted it in the ground and then the next day you go out and look at it and it seems like you did something wrong and it looks worse? It looks like sad and wilted and maybe even a little depressed. That's transplant shock. Most of the time, plants recover quickly within a few days, but sometimes they'll die. And that's just because they, their roots weren't able to recover. Transplanted Easter lilies may respond by turning brown on the stems and leaves after you plant it. Just cut the dead portion back right above the healthy part. Since it's spring right now, and if you plant transplant them now while it's nice and warm, your Easter lily should put on new growth, but just don't expect it to bloom a second time this year. These bulbs just don't, they're not likely to have enough stored energy to bloom again. They naturally would bloom in the summertime. They are summer blooming plants and they put on buds and bloom in June and July. Now, once the plant dies back in the fall, you can remove the dead upper portions of the lilies. Just cut them back at the base. Over winter, keep the bulbs well mulched. And in the springtime, you can add a slow release organic fertilizer once new growth appears. One last thing on Easter lilies. And it's something that you really want to consider um, if you if you have animals or little people in your house. And I, do, I just want you to know that all parts of the Easter lily are poisonous. Petals, leaves, stems, even the pollen are poisonous. They're considered toxic to cats and birds and can cause kidney failure. But they can also make dogs and people sick. So just be mindful of that when you have Easter lilies inside the house or outside where um, your pets might be able, your pets and your little people might be able to get to them. If you haven't started a vegetable garden this year, or maybe you're a little behind on planting some things, don't worry about it because mid-April is a wonderful time for planting all the great summer veggies. Just don't wait too long because the planting window for many things closes by early May when the temperatures start to ramp up. But we can plant all these warm season veggies from seeds now through the end of April. Beans, cantaloupe, chard, and the other warm season greens, cucumbers, okra, southern peas, like black-eyed peas, summer and winter squash, and watermelon. We can plant sweet potato slips 
and we can transplant eggplant, peppers, and tomato seedlings. Tomatoes and eggplants need to be in the ground by the end of April so that they have enough time to get their roots established. Tomatoes are big plants and they take a little while to get established. They have big root systems that need some time to develop. When the daytime temperatures are consistently above 90 degrees, tomatoes will stop blooming. So get your tomatoes in the ground so they have time to develop healthy roots and put on lots of tomatoes before it gets too hot. That's all I have for the show today, but I do have two last things that I want to share with you because I'm kind of excited about them. First, this coming Saturday, April 23rd, I will be a guest speech speaker at the Taylor Public Library. The Friends of the Library are hosting a fun event. They're hosting a plant swap and they invited me and a few other speakers to come hang out and talk and visit about plants. I'm going to be doing a demonstration on making a self-watering container, and I'm planning on bringing a few plants and seeds to trade too. The event starts at 1030 and wraps up about 230. So I hope I will see you at the Taylor Public Library on April 23rd. The other exciting news that I wanted to share with y'all is that I've started writing a gardening column for two local newspapers, the Taylor Press and the Elgin Courier. My column will appear in the Taylor Press every other Saturday and in the Elgin Courier every other Wednesday. All right, I'm going to let y'all go because I'm sure that y'all have plenty of things that you want to go do out in your yard. So go get them done and we'll catch up next time. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas. Thank you.